guns and money. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. This week is a special episode as we are reporting live from the DePaul Sports Law Symposium. Alongside Dan uh, Wallach, myself, uh, Dan Lusk, we are joined by Emily Farr. From here on out, uh, I'm going to uh, cede the floor to Emily to moderate this uh, special conversation of Conduct Detrimental. Emily, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Dan, and both Dans. It's so great to be with you today at DePaul. Really appreciate you coming out for your podcast. So let me start, because I know there are a lot of questions we want to cover. Dan Wallet, there's so much out there in the last couple of years, from sports teams attempting to unionize, to free speech issues, to licensing. What developments do you find the most interesting in 2020? Uh, well, I think the number one story, at least in my practice, and Emily, thanks for uh, joining us on the special edition of Conduct Detrimental. I mean, uh, in sports law, there's really, uh, you know, new controversies, new cases almost by the day or by the week. But in my practice, uh, I've been focusing my attention mainly on the rise and expansion of sports betting nationwide. Uh, three years or two years ago, the United States Supreme Court overturned the federal law that prohibited states from legalizing sports betting. And in just two short years, we've gone from just one state that had sports betting to now 25 states plus the District of Columbia. So on my watch and in my realm, that is the, that is probably the most intriguing story over the last couple of years. You know, with several of the larger markets uh, in the on-deck circle, like California, Texas, and Florida, I think that's going to loom as a major story, uh, in, as, at least in the legislative arena. And then this will, will, will completely transform uh, the way we consume and watch and think about sports. So that that's number one for me. What do you think, Dan? Any thoughts for 2020? Um, you know, I, I, Dan and I have spoken with this on prior podcasts, and, and maybe we have a, a slight disagreement, but um, there was a lot of attention paid to the three states that passed uh, sports betting legislation um, this past election cycle. Um, so that brings us, Dan, am I correct? Is that a total of 21 at this point, 21 states? No, it was 22, uh, the three on election day, uh, bumped the number up, I think, from 22 to 25. Uh, again, uh, the number changes every month, but it's, it's, I think it's exactly at 25 today. So, um, you know, uh, maybe this is just the, uh, the, we'll say like in a different, different, a different, uh, different path, I might have been uh, somewhat of a professional gambler had I not gone to law school. And um, all that fun stuff. But I, I do think we're trending in a direction where uh, it's almost um, at a practical level, at a dollars and cents level, it makes sense for every state to to, legisl- uh, to, to legalize sports betting. Um, cannabis is making its way there. Um, obviously, if it's uh, legal in all 50 states to have some form of alcohol, cannabis will get there. And um, for years, sports betting was as taboo as cannabis. Um, and uh, they're both making their way there. So I think it's a matter of, uh, of just of when. Um, all 50 states legalize. Maybe at some point there'll be clean federal legislation. But for now, um, Dan makes uh, a, a, his living in the sports betting space, uh, kind of going through the matrix and the really deep complexities of all the various state betting laws, be it mobile betting, be it uh, you know um, actually at a casino. So um, it's a very complicated web. So I, I love uh, you know picking Dan's brain on those issues. 
That's really interesting. And then let me ask you, because um, when you mentioned, you know, in-person betting versus, you know, obviously there's betting online, you know, obviously with COVID, the reason we're not all together is because there's a global pandemic. How has that impacted, if at all, sports betting? And has it sped up any of these changes you're talking about? So, Dan, I, I, well, oh, I want to give you the, the, legal, the legal part, but I will say from a, a debtor's perspective, from a gambling perspective, um, it, there was almost a, a hunger to place wagers of some sort, right? Because there were no sports for three, four months. So um, mm. I don't think anybody expected betters to come back, but um, I think Dan has been points this out on Twitter all the time. The amount of money that's being bet post, well, not say post-COVID, but in the later stage of COVID, um, I think is significantly up year over year, Dan. Is that my my on the right track here, Mr. Guru? Uh, well, yeah, there the were numbers reported out of some of the states that have both mobile and brick and mortar sports betting, you know, have, sh- have broken their own records month after month after month. Nevada was the, uh, you know, sports betting king at the very beginning, and now New Jersey and Pennsylvania have overtaken it. Illinois is going to be this, you know, monster, you know, when, when, the, enti- when the market matures. But what the pandemic, I think, has done um, is highlighted the need for a mobile wagering product because, you know, social distancing requirements and at least in Illinois, I think, I, th- I think casinos are not doing the kind of business they've been doing previously. People are reluctant to go out and be, be around other people in a social situation. So, um, you know, the pandemic has, I think, accentuated the need to modernize access uh, to betting markets. I mean, we play daily fantasy sports over our phone, uh, you know, mobile devices, laptops. Uh, We shop and purchase goods online. We bank online, buy movie tickets. It's natural that the next progression, uh, at least with with regard to sports wagering, would be a a fully mobile market. And already we're seeing in a limited limited experience or limited time horizon in states like New Jersey and Pennsylvania, the market is 90% mobile, 10% retail. And I think it's only going to get uh, more disparate um, as, as more folks become acclimated to, you know, consuming or betting online. I think that's where the trends are going. Uh, originally, sports betting was thought to be a, a driver of traffic to casinos and racetracks. But what we're seeing in the last one year is a product that has exploded in a mobile capacity and with more attention and focus placed on in-game wagering. Those are the kinds of bets that can more easily be made via mobile devices in real time than lining up at a betting window at a racetrack. So I I think states that were considering but not entirely on board with mobile wagering will now be much more incentivized to add a mobile betting product, not just for the ease and convenience of the customers, but to capture the full potential of the market, which in turn drives state tax revenues. That's so fascinating. And it's interesting because I'm an employment lawyer. And one of the things that I blog about is remote employment and how it's jumped. You know, in 10 years, we've just sped up because of COVID, um, you know, at least a decade, I think. Um, And when you're talking about people lining up, it makes me think, you know, this is also obviously a public health issue, right? I mean, at some point, it is better for people to be equipped to be on their own. You know, as we worry more about infectious diseases and viruses and and not to mention, I mean, the psych, the psychology of COVID, right? When it's over, there will still be people who don't feel comfortable in crowds, right? 
Um, I mean, think about the concert industry, the theater industry. I mean, are any of us going to be comfortable, uh, you know, in the front row at a, at, at a concert? It, will, the, will the industry recover uh, prior to 2022? I don't think so. So the same reasoning and rationale, I think, applies to other venues that attract uh, large, no that would tend to attract large numbers of people. I'm not going to be going to a racetrack. You can give me front row tickets to Bruce Springsteen. I'm not going to go. And I think a lot of folks feel that way. So it really does, uh, you know, to, 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 uh, to have the sports betting environment be brick and mortar only is really, it was an anachronism in 2019. In 2020, it's just reckless. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Okay, switching topics real quick, though, we have so much to go over. I just want to make sure I hit um, on all my questions. Um, Dan Lust, I follow you on Twitter, and I see that there's a good amount of tweeting you're doing about defamation actions. Do you think um, these defamatory actions are coming about, you know, at a higher rate due to COVID or is something else going on? People just meaner? <laughs> um, well, I think the, the one that you might be touching on is, uh, is this recent case, and, and Dan and I were just actually talking about it offline. Uh, DeAndre Baker is a, uh, was a cornerback for the New York Giants. Um, one of the wildest sports law stories you will ever hear about. Uh, DeAndre Baker was uh, criminally charged with armed robbery for an incident that occurred in Broward County, Florida. Um, you know, we, we can get into the whole, whole kit and caboodle, but essentially what happened was uh, he was at a party where there was a, ro a robbery of some sort that occurred, whether or not he was involved, we're not sure. Um, but at least at one point, prosecutors uh, in Florida uh, thought it sufficient to charge him with felony um, aggravated armed robbery for using a firearm in the course of, uh, of the robbery. Um, and uh, that was really based on the statements of four victims who um, somehow, somehow or another, even though he allegedly had a mask on his face, were confident that it was him and put in sworn affidavits saying that he was directly involved and was, you know, in some way, shape or form, appeared to them to be the ringleader of the whole operation. So this was back in mid-May uh, and now we're six months later and why, um, you know, we could go over the twists and turns that really kind of take this over the top and being one of the craziest sports law stories. Um, but really Friday, November 13th, uh, last Friday, these same four witnesses submitted a sworn affidavit in which they declared that uh, DeAndre Baker was not involved either directly or indirectly in this lawsuit. Um, what had happened or in this, in this criminal charge and then I guess in those six months, what you need to know is that DeAndre Baker's life was turned upside down. Former first round draft pick of the New York Giants was released um, and kind of cast aside by the NFL as a pariah. And uh, all of a sudden Friday, these witnesses basically just changed their version of events, which people obviously thought was strange. Um, and then Monday morning, the real bombshell, the lawyers for these victims gets arrested on extortion charges uh, uh, that he allegedly was trying to negotiate a, uh, a payment in exchange for them changing their stories. So um, there was numbers being talked about 1.5 million, 800,000. Um, no, no indication that any money was actually accepted by DeAndre Baker and that's why they changed their stories. But either here nor there, 10 minutes later, literally on Twitter, um, all charges dropped by the, uh, by the prosecutor's office. So um, defamation uh, you know, is coming up because what, what is DeAndre Baker gonna, gonna do, right? Someone said that he was the, the ringleader of an armed robbery. Um, you know, and I'm, we're not really sure, Dan and I were talking offline, if this is true or false, or if we just know that the witnesses are kind of corrupt. Um, but if this is someone that's going to fight to get his reputation back, he's going to do it via a defamation lawsuit, saying that it harmed his reputation, that it was objectively 
untrue. So that's the world we're in now. I'm not sure if it's really kind of COVID related. Um, I mean, maybe at some point, uh, you know, maybe at some point you get there and when, the, when COVID is officially over, right, the pandemic is officially done, we can see what the true effects of uh, defamation are uh, with respect to a pandemic. But this is one of these really, really strange stories that, that you're not going to come across that often, maybe, maybe ever again in such a high profile case. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I think what happened here, I, I, you know, with the with the uh, I, I guess the bribery uh, charges and the extortion charges, that many take that or assume that that means that they were lying the entire time. Uh, I think that these charges don't necessarily preclude the possibility or the likelihood that the witnesses told law enforcement the truth. The in the original incident report that this event incident did happen that way, but uh, these witnesses may have uh, decided to leverage or try to sell their recantation testimony uh, for a profit. So I don't know that this gets DeAndre Baker completely out of the clear, and if he files a defamation action, uh, you know, that, that throws all this open into discovery, and he wants to he wants to renew his National Football League career. He wants to play again, and I, and I don't think the NFL has completely shut the door on any investigations of DeAndre Baker. I think that that could become a live issue. And the last thing that Baker should want to do here is raise the specter of deposition discovery where he might have to go under oath. Wow. And other witnesses could come out of the woodwork. Right. Do you see there being, just as a follow-up to that, anything that the Colin Kaepernick case or Colin Kaepernick himself could use, um, you know, looking literally at this other guy as a comparator, if you will. I mean, right. I mean, I know people have said there's a lot of First Amendment issues with Kaepernick and 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 you know retaliation alleged. Uh, is there any connection there in your mind? Are they trading any strategy, or those totally separate? Yeah, I mean, at least from from my vantage point, it it seems to be separate. The Kaepernick is a, I mean, Kaepernick's name is coming up more and more. Uh, in some of these conversations, actually not probably another topic that that's probably fair game for this. Antonio Brown is a wide receiver in the NFL that uh, brings up a lot of headlines uh, for the wrong reason, right? He has civil, civil sexual assault case, criminal assault charges. Uh, the newest this past week, uh, he allegedly threw a bike, uh, bike at the surveillance camera, um, which could be in, in theory, maybe a violation of his criminal probation. So the reason I, I bring Antonio Brown up is, uh, Antonio has had his fair share of legal troubles, at least as of late, uh, locker room troubles as of late, but uh, he is now signed to play for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers uh, with Tom Brady, and the team has won three in a row, um, and every time uh, I post about Antonio Brown or I see one of Adam Schefter or um, Ian Rappaport talking about Antonio Brown, people in the comments are very quick to say, Colin Kaepernick did not commit any crime he still hasn't been able to find a team. Why is Antonio Brown yeah. getting all these chances to, to play? And I think it's a fair question. Yeah. I really do. Yeah, but it's also it's also in my view an example of the what about the what aboutism that has you know entered into the discussion in 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 the sports world. Uh, I think those are two completely different cases. Obviously, we can all agree that Colin Kaepernick is there is a chance uh, to renew his NFL career. But 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 
Antonio Brown is judged on the merits of Antonio Brown. And given his his past uh, history, he's really on, you know, the National Lampoon Animal House equivalent of double secret probation. I mean, one slip up here, uh, the NFL would not hesitate to suspend him again. And his 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 get out of jail free card, his only get out of jail free card is his relationship with Tom Brady. And the reality that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are all in for this year, come hell or high water. There's no, you know, five-year plan. This is all built around the, the notion of winning now. And if Tom Brady has Antonio Brown's back, that's all that Antonio Brown needs to worry about within the Tampa Bay Buccaneers culture. But he has the NFL to contend with, and the NFL has, to, has, has placed him in the equivalent of hyperspace for almost a year on the basis of nothing more than a civil lawsuit and then suspended him uh, for eight games based upon what I didn't think were, were proven allegations. So the NFL has overpunished Brown in the past and uh, it's not going to take much for the NFL's, you know, I, I guess, justice system to impose additional system on, on Roger Goodell, on, on Antonio Brown. When is C Commissioner Goodell ever gone light in the disciplinarian uh, or in the disciplinary arena. And I think Antonio Brown is playing with fire and sometimes he just can't help himself. You know, trouble uh, just comes to him like, uh, like, 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 you know, like, like no one I've ever seen in the national football league, he brings it on himself. So, I mean, we're getting deep into the NFL regular season, but I don't know. I don't know what's going to become of Brown after this year, but he's definitely playing with fire. And luckily, luckily, uh, Tom Brady has his back. Um, one, one more thing um, I just want to add, and then we can, we can kind of move on. I mean, Dan and I, uh, you know, we, we've talked in different instances. Our podcast is called Conduct Detrimental. So if a football player does something wrong, that's usually our wheelhouse. The, the fun, I don't want to say fun, but the interesting thing to watch for with DeAndre Baker, it looks by all indications like he's going to sign with the uh, defending Super Bowl champions, Kansas City Chiefs. People have uh, maybe, uh, we'll say, forgot about the fact that there is still an NFL suspension that is looming potentially. Um, so in the court of law, the standard is beyond a reasonable doubt to prove someone's guilt. Uh, in the court of Roger Goodell, the standard is credible evidence, which I don't know if you're going to bring a, uh, if you're going to bring a, you know, uh, an open complaint against someone and bring charges against somebody, um, right. There's probable cause, whether or not the witnesses are contradictory, doesn't really matter for purposes of credible evidence. Um, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think it's going to happen, but I also don't think it would be crazy uh, and it's so unexpected um, if DeAndre Baker got hit with some type of suspension. Mind you, he was at a party during a pandemic in Florida when he was not supposed to be. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you what, it's funny you mentioned that. I wrote about the credible evidence standard last year for the athletic. I mean, it's the lowest standard you can imagine in the law. You have proof beyond a reasonable doubt for criminal, preponderance of the evidence for civil cases. Credible evidence means any credible evidence. And in the, in the DeAndre Baker uh, and Quentin Dunbar cases, you have law enforcement officer affidavits based upon interviews with witnesses. One could argue, well, it may not be persuasive, uh, it, it, it may be borderline credible, but it, it at the very least satisfies the baseline for credible evidence. So Goodell has more than enough ammo uh, to shelve DeAndre Baker if he if he chooses to believe that testimony and it vests Goodell with considerable discretion that's almost 
uh, immune from any kind of appellate review. So I don't think I don't think the, the the door has been shut on NFL discipline when it comes to DeAndre Baker. But if we if nothing else comes out about his his case and no more witnesses or additional witnesses surface. I think in all likelihood he'll be he'll be able to continue his career with the Chiefs. And the irony is that the Chiefs are now getting a first round draft pick from a year ago and not having to pay to pay any part of his signing bonus when the Giants drafted him in the first round, traded up three picks or I'm sorry, traded three draft choices to move up into the first round and paid him a six million dollar signing bonus and then cut him. You know, when, when, when the charges were pending and now cannot recoup any part of that signing bonus. So the Giants invested all these assets, paid him a signing bonus, and now the Chiefs are going to reap the rewards and the benefits of picking him up on the cheap. Wow. I don't know what lesson to take from that, but that's an interesting, that's an interesting twist. <laughs> and it um, like like- the le- What's the lesson? Don't cut a player until you're absolutely sure uh, right. He's going to be found guilty because the Giants really had nothing, nothing to gain by cutting him precipitously. I mean, if we go, we can all play uh, Monday morning quarterback and have the benefit of all this 2020 hindsight because in, in August it looked pretty bad for DeAndre Baker. Uh, but the Giants weren't going to get out of his signing. They, they, the Giants were never going to be able to recoup his signing bonus. So there was absolutely at least no long-term or short-term incentive to cutting bait with him in August. They could have just kept him on the, uh, you know, suspended or, or not the suspended, but the paid without leave, the paid with leave and just held on to his rights. And then if he was convicted and sentenced to a, to a jail term of more than, you know, one year where he would have missed 21 and 22 seasons, at that point, the Giants could have recouped at least that portion of his signing bonus. Now they get nothing for their investment and another team gets them free and clear. Wow. Do you think that's going to change teams' behaviors in the future? No, but it's going to get Dave Gettleman, the general manager of the New York Giants, potentially fired. Okay. I think I think he was already for that him. reason. For yeah. that reason, among others. Yeah, it, it wouldn't. It's, we'll say the proximate cause is unclear. It's it's a okay. a cause. Okay. Hopefully, he doesn't get a golden parachute on the way out, and then they're <laughs> and they're just paying more money. <laughs> okay, so you guys. I mean, obviously you have a wealth of information when it comes to sports law. And as a lawyer, you know, I'm more of the variety of, you know, I I do some employment law. I'm a general commercial litigator, but nowhere near this type of niche experience. And I just wonder for the people who have um, come from DePaul and for your listeners um, who may or may not be lawyers, but, you know, have their own careers. How did you both get into or determine that you wanted to really drill down into this specific industry within the law? So, um, you know, just, uh, I guess the, in a nutshell, um, and I should also mention, uh, we were recording this at eight o'clock on Wednesday night. So, um, if I yell out a shriek, it might be because I have the NBA draft on in the background. Um, <laughs> but I, but it's, you know, to, to answer your question, I mean, I, I am a sports nut in every sense of the word. When I went to college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just said, I want to be involved in sports in some sense. Um, so, uh, my first taste of sports was working for the New York Giants public relations department. So um, I, I am a little biased when it comes to giant stuff. So we don't need to get into that stuff, but you know, I, I got the taste there and, and then I just kind of said, uh, and a lot of people, smart people around me said, just get a, a law degree and then it might help you do what you'd want to do in sports. So 
Um, you know, I learned over the next, I don't know, eight, eight, nine years at this point from the beginning of law school and until today, um, the, the goal of the way that you get into the sports field is not by knowing a lot about sports. Um, it's by being a very good lawyer, but as Dan and I, you know, we're definitely on the same page on this, knowing a lot of sports, uh, is going to be helpful if you're, uh, you know, if you're a very good attorney on, on top of it. So, um, that's just the way that my mind works. I didn't really know there was a field to be a true lawyer, uh, and also separately just, you know, working around sports. So, uh, I recently, uh, you know, after being in this kind of hybrid sports media space for, um, almost two years, just kind of reporting on sports and, and, you know, writing little blurbs. Um, I got hired by a sports and entertainment firm to sue teams and, uh, represent player rights. So, um, very much so me being a fan, uh, but just having my own credentials as a litigator uh, is what kind of just dropped me into this niche. It was definitely never the plan at any point. I wanted to be Jerry Maguire with, uh, you know, all the fancy catchphrases, but, uh, you know, uh, life always has a path. So you just got to get along for the ride. Yeah, I mean, I had a completely different uh, pathway into sports law and gambling law. I was a commercial litigator and an appellate lawyer. Uh, for close to 20 years. I mean, I was sort of a sleeper cell in sports law. I didn't even have uh, any inkling that this would be the path I'd, I'd be going on until I was already in my, my early 50s. Uh, I had spent all the years practicing law as a partner at a law firm, and maybe it was a midlife crisis, or maybe it was just fate or coincidence, but back in 2013, uh, I was assigned a, a gambling case to represent a horse racetrack in a lawsuit against another horse racetrack. It's a state court case in Florida, and it just sort of, you know, just galvanized me. I found this area of law, like, so fascinating. It was just simply the law of horse racing. Uh, but it got me interested in starting a blog on, uh, you know, I had one of the first gambling law blogs in the country. And I started that with the, you know, I guess the blessing of my law firm. And I obsessed over a single case, one legal controversy, which was the uh, impending legalization of sports betting. So going back seven years and just to kind of tie this all together, uh, seven years ago, I began blogging about New Jersey's efforts to overturn the federal ban on sports betting. And I covered all the court proceedings, wrote blog posts whenever anything happened in the federal court. And, and it caught an audience. It developed an audience and gained some traction. And I started developing a little bit of a persona around that. And I almost, and I accidentally stumbled into this case when really in, 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 in essence, what it really was, was almost like a midlife crisis for a lawyer looking for a creative outlet was never part of any business plan, but I was so good at it. I was so passionate about it that I think uh, I found a niche just from what originated as a hobby. And it's a very, a very good lesson that when you hear Dan and I tell, tell you know, give, give our backgrounds, there, there are no similarities other than the fact that we had great passion for something. And in my case, it was writing about it and developing credibility based upon subject matter expertise. And once I had that, and it was in a field that there were so few lawyers talking about this, I think I had very few barriers to entry and it was a way, you know, a way I went. I was like the Neil Armstrong of sports betting law because I was one of the first to arrive on the scene. Today, you know, there, there are like hundreds 
but I can still I can still ride on my own coattails from 2013, and and I think that was the big the big you know path for me into sports law. See, Dan Neil Armstrong works, but like I don't really mind like a founding fathers like yeah. Abe Lincoln. You could have. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, and and then I'll play to the audience here. And then the second big break was when uh, I was asked uh, to be a, a legal uh, analyst and contributor to the Athletic. And I say that because uh, my I noticed that my editor is on the line, uh, Diamond. Uh, how you doing, Diamond? Uh, so um, you know all these you know. Crazy coincidences happened, but all of it, all of it stems and, and, and traces back to hard work and having a real abiding passion for a subject and being obsessed with it. Yeah, no, I think that's the greatest lesson. I mean, look, when when Dan Lust said it's 8 p.m. on Wednesday, I didn't think you were referring to the draft. I thought you were referring to the fact that it's 8 p.m. on Wednesday. You know, you're doing something you love, uh, obviously. So after a long day we have uh, two screen action going on. I mean, I can't miss the first pick of the draft. Yeah. No. At the tone for the NBA for years. That's great. You know, I represent. I represented a little sidebar in the NBA draft. I represented Obi Toppin. Is that how you pronounce his name? It's Toppin, but uh, he might be uh, Obi Toppin. Yeah. I don't even know my own client. Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, shows you I don't know my own client's name, but I assisted. I, I assisted Alan Milstein, noted sports lawyer, in representing Obi Toppin's uh, father. Uh, within the last couple of months, uh, in, in a you know, was ha having some past you know criminal history, you know, expunged from his record, so I have some six degrees of separation. So it hopefully will be a future member of the New York Knicks. But you I might guess be we'll find the out. arena that you're sitting in right now in that lovely luxury box that you have. Yeah, it's not that lo lovely of a luxury box. If you could tell from the background, that must obviously be 1990s. Madison Square Garden, because I have not seen the arena look like that uh, during the James Dolan era. You must have not been to a Ranger game recently, Dan. <laughs> uh, no, that's basketball. Oh, I, I, the basketball. garden can get packed in. It just depends on the sport yeah. you're talking about. Knicks, not so much. <laughs> well, it was, it was at least before March of 2020. I can tell that from the crowd size. So Fair observation. <laughs> I have a question from the audience, so let me throw this out. Thoughts on Randy Gregory being reinstated and how the NFL handled his case specifically. So my understanding about the Randy Gregory, um, well, I think Jordan that asked that must be a Cowboys fan because no one has asked me about the Randy Gregory reinstatement uh, ever. So I'm going to take a leap of faith that Jordan is a, is a Cowboys fan. So uh, Gregory is on the, on the defensive line for uh, the Cowboys. Um, my understanding is he was out for about a year uh, with the marijuana charge and he missed, I think, the first six games. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the biggest issue when it comes to marijuana suspensions is probably, uh, you know, that same conversation that's going on across all 50 states. When marijuana is decriminalized in any given state, right, um, should the people in jail that got in trouble for uh, marijuana offenses, should they still have those, you know, um, still sit in jail for another six years or however long they have on their sentences? Is that really fair? So when it comes to Gregory, I know the new CBA uh, really uh, took out the teeth of any type of marijuana punishment. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's that fair, but uh, again, you can't go, uh, you know, the, the argument against changing punishment is like ex post facto, right? If you do something at the time it's illegal, just because it's later decriminalized, does that take out, uh, you know, the wrongdoing? Is there, you know, should you no longer be punished, even though you did it uh, intentionally while the thing was illegal? So. Um, I kind of see it uh, both ways. I could I could make an argument either way. Uh, you know, when it comes to marijuana offenses in general, 
I don't think it makes sense for someone to sit in jail for 10 years for an offense that is no longer uh, criminal. But, you know, um, Gregory missed six games. The punishment, it is what it is. It, you know, it is. It's not as a lifetime ban or anything. So, um, you know, it seems seems like it's it's wrapping itself up soon. Um, Dana, do you have anything else on the uh, for our, our Jordan Myers, our, our cowboy resident Cowboys fan over here? No, the Gregory case, uh, you know, never captivated me. There are so many suspensions in the NFL. Uh, that one didn't stay on my radar for very long. Uh, so, no, I have nothing to add about the Gregory suspension. Okay, shifting gears for a moment as we get closer to the end. Um, you know, obviously, this is one of a couple colleges that I understand you guys are touring on your podcast. And... <laughs> Of course, sports fans already have a leg up in my mind with networking. I, I know this from not knowing a lot about sports, and I, and I really am starting to learn very slowly. Um, but as far as networking in a pandemic, it is challenging. What is some advice you, know, you would give to you know, the young folks out there, not that you're not young, but the younger folks, on how to continue um, to keep up their networking, whether they're in law school right now, undergrad, or, or just starting out, particularly when there's so many barriers? Um, first of all, Emily, I take offense to the fact that I can't be called young anymore, okay? this Don't let this fear <laughs> fool you. I'm a ripe 32 over here. So um, what, what I think, uh, you know, and I, I speak to law students fairly regularly, um, and I think Dan is the same way. I think I've met more people um, in from this March to March 2020 to November 2020 than I did in March 2019 to November 2019. Um, if you really pour your resources into it, you can meet exponentially more people outside of your practice area, outside of your jurisdiction, maybe even outside of the country through the power that is social media. Um, you know, I, I think people, I mean, I, I've always taken the, the mindset, I'll reach out to anybody. Uh, I'll really answer anyone's DM. I, maybe Dan and I are rare breed. We talk to really every, anyone that reaches out. Maybe it's because we're both sick individuals and we just like answering sports law questions. But it does open up uh, a lot of doors. I was speaking to a law student um, in, uh, in London who was just having issues picking classes. And I, you know, he reached out to me. We, and you know, I, I went back and forth with him. So um, I, I think people need to kind of still realize like, uh, there's, this, there's an expression in the NBA, uh, it's famous for J.R. Smith, former Nick, uh, shooters are going to shoot. Um, and that's uh, Emily, a, a, for non-sports, it's just basically a way of saying the worst that could happen is, is the shot doesn't go in, right? The worst case is that someone says no. So I think if you're, if you're applying yourself correctly to networking, trying to get jobs, trying to get clients, um, you can send, right, like 20, 30 cut and paste, um, really no opening, opening starters, then you can, you know, meeting people at like wine and cheese events, if those are ever going to come back post-COVID. Wine and cheese events. I don't know if they have to. I'm not sure if they're but uh, yeah, you, you can, you can hit a lot, a lot of people. I think it's really a numbers game when you, when you play it online, um, but you just have to really pour, pour your resources into it and your time. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I share a lot of Dan's, you know, perspectives on this, but I, I look at it as an opportunity while you're in law school to, uh, you know, kind of showcase your knowledge and, and expertise in an area. Now, net networking has its place, but it's not a substitute for one academic achievement. But also, there are so many journals that you could write for both at your school and, or submit articles across the country to different sports and entertainment law journals. And, and I go back to my one of my best friends in the, in the industry and in life, Michael McCann. Uh, he became a prominent uh, sports attorney. 
initially by writing a law review article about the NBA's, you know, I guess, you know, age minimum and whether that, you know, could withstand NBA, you know, antitrust scrutiny. He started by writing a law review article that got on the radar of another attorney who hired Michael in a voluntary capacity to assist him in a, in a case involving Maurice Claret about 15 years ago. And all of that happened not because Michael networked or knew the right people or went to the right parties or sent polite emails. Uh, he he self-made himself into an expert by writing a law review article that was very well received by this lawyer that was handling a case involving a similar topic. So whether there's a pandemic or not, I think when you're in law school and you don't have billable hours to worry about or have to be you know, in, in person at an office between 9 a.m. and 6 p.m., while you're in law school, you have a complete blank slate and canvas on which to paint. And to take advantage of that opportunity and utilize it, uh, I, I think, to, especially within the realm of sports law, expertise stands out grasp of the subject matter stands out and you'll never be able to convey it the same way uh, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, at a party or at a networking event than if it stands on its own in a published piece. Now, writing isn't for everybody. Not everybody has a law review article in them, uh, but they really are, uh, an they could be a valuable calling card uh, in conversations with people in the industry for jobs, uh, I, I think it's I think it's an undertaking that's worth your time at this stage in your career. And that held true last year, the year before, the year before that. And I can only uh, look back or look at my own recent ascension into sports law and gambling law. None of it, none of it would have happened if I didn't put in the investment of time to write what I what what turned out to be pretty insightful and persistent. Uh, articles about a subject that was gaining popularity. And I, you know, I showcased my knowledge of the topic through writing, not through networking. There's not, there's no substitute for that. Yeah, that's, that's great advice. I mean, you both have taken obviously a deep dive into what you're passionate about in different ways. I always tell students when I talk to them, including DePaul students, you know, don't check boxes, check on people. You know, I think you can yeah. say the same about topics, right? I mean, like stay up on your craft um, it's a huge difference. Okay, so I have to ask before we wrap up about the new Robinson Cano news that's out. If you could take talk about that, uh, I know everyone would be eager to hear. Um, so I'll, I guess I'll, I'll take it first because um, Dan is very impartial since he he claims to be a Yankees fan, but he like tweets a lot about Steve Cohn for a Yankees fan. So he's a secret closet Mets fan. I think we can we can. I'm, I'm just trying to get his business. <laughs> I mean, like Dan, he's got millions. He's got not just millions, he's got billions. So there's enough business. Hey, he can afford a $20,000 per month retainer just to talk to me about sports betting and the prospect of an in-stadium sports book at City Field. Who needs clients if you have $20,000 a month coming? Just take one. Um, so um, the story, the story you obviously haven't seen my insurance premiums. Um, man, you have a suite in Madison Square Garden, so someone's paying the bills somewhere. I feel very confident about that. Um, but yeah, so so Robinson, uh, you know, he's obviously a second baseman on the on the New York Mets. Um, the news today is that he received a, a performance enhancing drug suspension, his second in the last, uh, we'll say, two and a half years, right around there. Um, so under the Major League Baseball collective bargaining agreement, 
Uh, one for your first PED suspension gives you uh, an 80 game suspension. That's half a season. Your second one gives you the full year. So um, Cano has been on, a, I think it's a 10 year, $240 million contract. So from a sports law perspective, um, I, I find it kind of fascinating. You know, at some point, um, Emily, you're an employment lawyer, right? Did we talk yes. about this? Yes. So this is this is probably up your alley. It's a it's a collective bargaining agreement dispute. Basically, they uh, the two sides, uh, the, the Major League Baseball Players Association, aka the union, and the league came to a deal. You know, this half season suspension, full season suspension, and the third time you get hit with steroids or some type of performance enhancing a drug is a lifetime ban. So, um, what I think is an interesting element, we have a new CBA coming up, I believe, at the end of the following season of 2021. Um, and there's going to be a really fun conversation that occurs. Robinson Cano is signed through the year 2023. He's going to be paid $24 million per year. During the life of this contract, he's now been hit twice for PEDs, for performance-enhancing drugs. I, I don't personally think it's fair. I mean, the Mets uh, are not going to have to pay his $24 million salary this year because he's not playing, and they made a rule that uh, while you're suspended, you do not have to be paid. So fine, 24 billion, 24 million. Steve Cohn is a billionaire. It doesn't really matter to him. But for purposes of baseball, uh, for the 2021, or sorry, for the 2022 season and 2023 season, there's $48 million going to a guy who's now a repeat offender in terms of steroids. So, um, you know, I made a comment about it on Twitter. I, I'm not really opposed to revisiting the CBA in this, this one regard um, and rewriting a clause that says, uh, if you are hit with steroids, right, that you're not guaranteed those same future earnings that you were going to make. For example, if you're in the middle of a 10-year contract, whatever those years that are left remaining, whatever that money is remaining, um, the team should, I think, in all in all equity and fairness, have the ability to nullify that remaining terms of, of that deal. I mean, I'm not sure if the union would go for it, but I, I think that's a yeah. right topic for, for CBA negotiations. Yeah. Uh, and, and Dan, I look at Robinson Cano's trajectory and descent uh, through a different lens. As you correctly pointed out, I'm a New York Yankees fan. And, you know, through 2013, um, Robinson Cano was en route to a likely Hall of Fame career. Mm-hmm. And he had a, he had a decision to make uh, in the offseason, whether to sign with the Yankees or try to take the highest offer. And with the Yankees, they had offered him seven years, $175 million dollars. The Mariners got him with a, with a better offer of 10 years, $240 million, but that probably placed him on the road to ruin because with the Yankees, he had like, you know, when you're in, wearing the pinstripes, winning a World Series, he's protected in that lineup, is always protected in that lineup. And I wonder whether his, fi- whether, whether his fate would have, you know, been different uh, had he remained with the New York Yankees because he didn't have to carry the team. He had to carry the Mariners, and with the Mets, there are obviously unrealistic expectations. So he really destroyed a Hall of Fame legacy. And luckily for him, uh, while while his career as a useful everyday Major League Baseball player is over, he at least has $48 million of guaranteed money coming his way. But it begs the question, why even take steroids? If you have, seven, if you have 10 years, $240 million, the downside risk from taking performance-enhancing drugs is you jeopardize or risk that guaranteed money. Uh, and, and, and even if his even if his performance was underwhelming, if he reverted back to being a 250, 260 hitter with only modest power, 
the bottom line is they could never, the Mets, the Mariners, the Yankees would never be able to get out from under that contract. So with a long-term guarantee like that, I'm wondering why would Robinson Cano take that risk and, and essentially cost himself $24 million and, 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 maybe that, and maybe that's going to carry forward into 2022 and 2023. But that was just really a dumb decision by somebody with a long-term guaranteed contract. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just jump in quick to defend Robinson, who when he was a Yankee, Dan, because um, we know that you're a I, – I don't even know if you're a Yankees fan or Mets fan at this point. I feel like it's – I started as a Mets fan. I started as a Mets fan, but when the owner of the team is Joan Payson, uh, they trade Tom Seaver. They've basically, basically operated as a small market team in a big market ever since the day I was born. They've never truly had well-heeled – uh, well-financed ownership. I think Nelson Doubleday would count as that. Uh, but outside of those 15 or so years, they've been owned by, you know, by, by men and women that just didn't have the kind of coin needed to compete with some of the big boys and, 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 and big outfits in Major League Baseball. Now they're owned by, a, by somebody with not only the highest net worth among all Major League owners, but he's, his, his net worth is higher by a multiple of three. So if Steve Cohen had been, the, if he could time travel and go back to 1976, I'd probably never become a New York Yankees fan. Um, I think that's your fancy way of saying that you are a front runner and you like teams that win games. Dan. I, the only time. I'm just going to. The only time. I'm just going to say it. So uh, the reason I bring it up, Cano, for, for the life of his uh, Yankees run, definitely maybe even a first Ballot Hall of Famer, even with the, the Mariners, he was having a good year. Dan, sneakily, because I had to look this up earlier, uh, 2020, Robinson Cano was actually pretty solid. Hit 316, had a, a near 900 OPS, 352 on base, 544 slugging. So he had a good year. I think it's uh, pretty, people are quick to kind of say, hey, obviously he took the steroids on purpose. 38-year-old heading into the twilight years of his career, he's probably done. Um, so I don't know if it was so intentional. It might just be that sometimes the version of these steroid or PED uh, intake mm -hmm. is somebody just not being properly advised of what's not on the list or they're trusting a trainer as to what's not on the list. And I'm sure 38 years old, Robinson Cano is trying new stuff with his body and taking new supplements that maybe he hasn't mm -hmm. taken before to try to beat father time. Um, I, if you're asking me on my gut, I think it's probably closer to the latter one. This isn't a guy that's, Dan, like to your point, competing for a new contract. I think he's just trying not to embarrass himself at the plate. Um, Mm -hmm. But you know, uh, it's a second time user, so second time uh, suspension. So you got to be a little, a little smarter than that. Um, and the optics, you know. And I, I will say one more thing, Dan. Um, the shocking development of the Mets fans that I'm friends with are, uh, dare I say, maybe happy that this happened. Have you been hearing the same thing from your uh, circle of Mets fans that you run in? My my, my, my inside sources in, in in City Field. No, your I mean, main client. Your twenty thousand uh, dollars. If this if this were the NBA or if this were the NHL leagues that had a hard salary cap, getting Robinson Cano's twenty four million dollars off the books would be a, like a lifeline to a franchise. But in baseball, there isn't a hard uh, salary cap. There's just a luxury tax, and a luxury tax to Steve Cohen is essentially what a uh, uh, you know what, what what a sales tax is to Daniel Wallach. It's it's not that big of a a deal unless you know you're you're buying a, a very high priced item. But I don't think it's a, I don't think it opens up opportunities for the Mets to replace him in the same vein that it would have been had this been an NHL you know team with a hard cap of eighty one million dollars. Obviously, 
clearing money of that magnitude off of a payroll does give a team more options. Uh, but I just don't think it's of the same magnitude that it would be on the other sport. So I know, I know we're talking about Robinson Cano or kind of running the, 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 you know, sort of the, the gauntlet tonight on sports law topics, but on the night of the NBA draft, we'd be remiss not to remember the contribution that Spencer Haywood and probably one of the most famous sports law cases in NBA history has contributed to the, you know, to the dimension and, and how the NBA draft is now conducted. There was once a time you had to play four full years in college before you could become eligible for the NBA draft. And Spencer Haywood challenged that rule uh, roughly a half a century ago. And because of his litigation efforts and the successful Supreme Court decision, that led to the NBA hardship rule and, and ultimately gave way to one and done. So some of the most famous sports law cases in our lifetime, uh, you know, impacted the way the NBA draft is operated today. Um, yeah, and, and uh, just to, to add one one final point, uh, I think also um, we need to uh, maybe Dan for a later podcast. I don't think we're time permitting, but we should get into the fact that uh, Lamelo Ball selected uh, third overall was one of a uh, handful of pros in the history of uh, and the American professional sports to play professional in one league that's not the NBA or the NFL and now is drafted to play in the NBA third overall to the Charlotte uh, Hornets. Uh, my bet cashed, if anyone was curious, because, um, you know, I had a feeling that mm. fellow would slip, but um, for another time. But, yeah, I, I think we owe it to Oscar Robertson uh, and any number of uh, greats that helped establish uh, some semblance of player rights in the, in the NBA. Awesome. Well, yeah, you're right, uh, Dan. We hit a bunch of topics. I really appreciate you guys letting me come on and pick your brains tonight and be part of the podcast. I am really excited to continue to listen to Conduct Detrimental and learn as much as I can about what's going on today. There's certainly a lot. So thank you so much. And, and thank you on behalf of DePaul for being part of this symposium today. So, uh, Emily, thank you very much for moderating, I guess, for podcast purposes. That'll put this uh, in the books. Uh, and, guys, we will see you next week uh, at Minnesota Law School for uh, our third and final installment of the live episodes of Conduct Detrimental. Dan, anything to add before we, we wrap the podcast? Oh, God. Uh, Emily, thank you very much for having us on. RJ, thank you for uh, putting this all together. It's not easy to uh, organize a, a, a panel, even a panel, much less a full symposium. So, uh, I mean, that's one great, that's probably the best networking advice or best networking experience you could possibly have considering all the people you meet in organizing a symposium. So RJ, great job. And Emily, you definitely have a future if we ever, ever decide to expand uh, the co-host role at Conduct Detrimental to add a third person. You did a really nice job teeing us up and uh, you know we look forward to having this uh, you know in, in the podcast arena uh, featuring you along with uh, you know Dan and myself so thanks for joining us this week and giving us this uh, this platform I guess we will wrap and uh, we will see everyone next week on another episode of Conduct Detrimental